Parks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This food industry-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to help keep you up to date. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the X Talks Food Podcast. I'm Sydney Perlmutter, food industry journalist and webinar moderator at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sarah Hand, and Mira Nabulsi. Thanks for coming today. So I'm going to start us off with a story about cell-based fish. So we've heard of cell-based meat or meat grown in a lab, lab-grown meat, um, but its seafood equivalent could be on the horizon. Uh, and last week in this story that I wrote was kind of the first time that I've gotten into this and investigated a little bit, but it has been making a quote-unquote splash in recent years. Um, and several alt-food companies are, are making f- uh, the semifinals and finals of alternative protein competitions. So that's generally where these things start um, and make names for themselves. Um, but I kind of get into whether consumers will be seeing these products um, on sushi menus anytime soon. Um, So if you're wondering what cell-based fish is or what it looks like, it's basically, well, it was developed to sort of divert human appetites for wild-caught seafood and ease the pressure on global fisheries and, you know, let the oceans kind of replenish. But a recent study actually found that the ability for cell-based seafood to achieve this conservation outcome is a little oversimplified and will rely on extensive, um, an extensive chain of events. So, but there are still reasons to remain optimistic about this technology. So in terms of what it looks like and how it's produced, um, muscle cells from a fish are extracted and then propagated in um, ideal conditions inside a bioreactor. Um, And that's one thing, but they have to also look like fish. So to give them that structure and the texture of fish, um, the cells are grown on what they call an edible scaffold that is designed to be indistinguishable from wild-caught fish. And uh, luckily for the producers of this, um, a lot of the technology was borrowed from cell-based meat production. Uh, So it wasn't as much of a challenge to nail that down, but the real challenge kind of lies with consumers and, you know, them making the switch. So unfortunately that we know of so far, there's sort of a fickle consumer market and it will be tough for cell-based fish makers uh, to overcome this. And I found a sort of study and 70 to 80 percent of new food products are rejected by consumers um, and especially foods that replace traditional meat they have an additional hurdle um, of having to establish their likeness to the real thing so it's going to be a very hard sell and also another thing is that the initial high cost of cell-based fish which is probably going to cost a lot more to produce than wild caught fish um, is also likely to discourage consumers from making the switch. Uh, but for now, we can focus on the technology and its potential because it's really cool. So despite it only gaining mainstream attention pretty recently, there's already a handful of companies that have successfully developed various types of uh, cell-based seafood like carp, shrimp, and salmon. But even the most advanced companies are still in the pre-market stages of taste testing and tweaking. Um, and that's why we haven't seen or heard of many of them yet. Uh, but that hasn't stopped them from, you know, 
getting those funds from venture capital firms. There was something called the Feed the Next Billion, um, which was a competition, $15 million competition, um, that aims to help the world, the world's growing population with alternative protein sources. And of the semifinalists in this competition, two of them were, were cell-based aquaculture startups. So um, both of them are based in the U.S. One is called Blue Nalu, and the other is called Wild Type. And they were the two semifinalists in this category. Um, and the, both of them have also, you know, had a, a, quite a lot of funding. Blue Nalu has raised $85 million and Wild Type has accumulated $16 million. So clearly this is something that, you know, we'll see a lot of money invested in. It's really just a matter of how long this is going to take for large scale production and for us to actually see these, you know, these alternatives on the shelf. So, you know, there are a lot of benefits to cell-based fish, even if it's going to be a hard sell. Um, and the first thing is that we can reduce the threat of mercury pollution that we find in real fish, as well as the threat of microplastics in real fish. And it has the potential to replace unsustainable forms of fish production, um, mainly land-based shrimp farms. Um, and However, there are other methods that exist to reduce overfishing, um, but cell-based fish could be one of them, um, depending on how quickly and effectively the technology evolves. So the whole time I was writing this, I was just kind of thinking back to lab-based meat or lab-grown meat and how quickly that's evolved as well, but we still don't really see much of it. So I was just wondering, um, you know, where you guys see this technology going, whether you would try it and if you think it would actually have the potential to, um, you know, do some, do some good for the environment. I think when lab grown meat first started, I was kind of um, iffy about it. It was worrying. It was like, what is lab grown meat exactly? And I think the same kind of questions come up now with plant, uh, with um, lab grown fish, but I can see it having a major potential in the market especially things like fish fingers and things like that that like are kind of less you know like I don't know about like sashimi or something like that but mm -hmm. like fish fingers or fish and chips or that kind of stuff that's like lab grown I don't think that scares me as much but like having something like raw tuna in quotations or um, things like that maybe would be more difficult to accept in society but that's just my opinion. Yeah, I think it's like a really cool concept. I would definitely try lab-grown fish and lab-grown meat. And um, I think similar to the discussion we had, uh, it might have been last week's podcast episode or, or the week before, um, about that uh, it was like a fungi-based meat alternative. You know, you've got the hurdle to overcome of this like very clinical lab sort of dystopian future type image I think that comes up with the idea of something being grown in a lab and and especially it, it being like real living cells even if it is really meat and I think for that reason even if this were to take off and and they were able to get costs down and that sort of thing I think there would always be a market for you know quote unquote the real thing and like Mira is saying maybe there would be applications that would be better than others um Although I'm sure these companies are sort of like aiming for the top. Like I bet they're looking to make uh, sushi quality, like sushi yeah. grade fish as opposed to sort of like straight into like a 
boxed, like frozen boxed fish finger kind of thing. Um, I think this kind of brought up another question for me that I'd like to hear all of your opinions on. Do you think that like in general consumers are under the impression that overfishing is less environmentally damaging compared to livestock farming? Like I, I think that um, we know that there's a lot of greenhouse gas emissions from raising cattle, for instance, um, and that a lot of, of energy goes into um, raising a cow and getting a steak or a burger or whatever. Um, and even though, you know, we probably know that, that overfishing is a big problem, do you think the general consumer does? And, and do you think that would influence their um, decision on whether or not to go for something like this, the cell-based fish? So I think after um, the Seaspiracy documentary came out, I think that mm. question has really been brought up. But I point. think it's less to do with carbon emission and more to do with climate change. I think it's more mm -hmm. to do with the amount of fish that's being taken out of the ocean and affecting the ecosystem within the water is actually affecting the entire ecosystem in general. Mm -hmm. So I think mm -hmm. the idea of um, overfishing has definitely been, you know, a trending topic and people have been more aware of the effects of overfishing. But I think it differs from livestock in the sense of um, it's less energy consuming, I think, but it's more climate change um, focused. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I think there definitely is an awareness of the problems and issues around um, overfishing. But then the alternative, like lab-grown meats or, or now lab cell-based lab-grown fish, I think, um, I don't know if it's almost going to be like requiring a paradigm shift to be able to accept that for a lot of consumers. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like um, like you said, it's uh, Sarah, it's like a very dystopian kind of thing, like kind of you know, taking stuff from a clinical setting in a lab and, um, you know, all of the sort of issues around, you know, science and, yeah. um, you know, scientifically manufacturing, I don't even know if that's a term, but it's just like those kinds of things, you know, conjure up certain images and certain um, hesitancies um, to do with compared to the real thing, of course. So I would definitely try it because I think this is really cool. Um but I don't think we're quite there yet because I know lab-grown meat in itself, these concepts came out of, it's been more than five years or so, and I'm not really sure what the sort of um, the limiting steps are there really um, to get this to market in a full-fledged way. So we're not quite there, but conceptually, like, I think it's really cool, offers a great alternative for sure, um, and we'll see where it goes, yeah. The one thing I didn't mention, too, is that um, this will never be a thing where you're going to find a fish with bones, a head, mm -hmm. eyes, or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It's literally thing, just yeah. like the piece of meat the that, that of meat, you would yeah. find, you know, in the grocery store, too. Yeah. But I don't think that technology is ever going to be there to, like, recreate yeah. a fish in its entirety. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe for some it will take away that, like, <laughs> you know, just just – the reason why a lot of, you know, people are vegetarian or, or vegan in the first place is because of like animal cruelty as well. So mm -hmm. this is like one thing where, you know, it gives them an alternative as well. It, Cause rarely I feel like people become vegetarian or vegan cause they don't like the taste of meat right. um, and its benefits. I feel like it's a lot of, you know, because of the animals. So yeah, 
I think just based off of how quickly plant-based foods have evolved, maybe we'll see this, you know, in mainstream, uh, you know, in the market sooner than than we thought. Um, but yeah, it's definitely going to take a while for for people to like shift over and overcome that like uncanniness in a way of like, is it real or is it not quite real? Um, mm-hmm. And the price hurdle as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely like, so much less waste. I think that's like a huge mm-hmm. pro. And as you say, the there aren't really, I guess there are still some ethical considerations. I mean, you're like getting the cells from a fish originally to propagate. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know what happens when you're continuously propagating those cells. I, I don't know if it, there's the opportunity for mutations there that would change the function of the meat or anything. But um but I, I can almost foresee, like, if this did take off, that there would be, like, you would kind of go to a restaurant and they'd say, like, oh, we only serve, like, real caught fish as opposed to lab-grown fish. You know, there would always be someone who was like, I want the real thing. Uh, like, almost yes. the way right now we have um, the, like, you know, the, like, wild versus farmed fish. There's, yeah, you know? exactly yeah. that. And and also, like, just the, the conflict between, like, uh, organic produce and like mm-hmm. GMO produce and that people say we proudly serve organic veggies or whatever and like yeah. local veggies. I mean, I, this wouldn't be something, even though there's so many obvious benefits, I just think it would be hard to sell people on the fact that it's not, you know, quote unquote natural, right? I think mm-hmm. people will have a hard time getting over that. Um, but it could certainly solve a lot of issues. And, and like you're saying, Sydney, the fact that it was entered into this, you know, contest to help feed the world's growing population. I think that's like another big, big plus to this kind of thing. Yeah. Technology. Sorry. Technologies like, like this, this is where we see like millions and millions of dollars being poured into. It's like, these types of innovation are what gets like, you know, venture capitalists excited because they can see like, they can see um, that like, we're going to need solutions like this in the future. Um, So it's a long-term investment and like, you know, people like we were saying with the fungi based meat, nature's fine. Like Jeff Bezos and, and um, Al Gore and other billionaires were investing in this, like, Mm -hmm. and they're not stupid people. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they see like, they can see this um, or I don't know, maybe they're, they're being you know told to do this but i don't know pretty big investments in in things like this but anyway uh mira i'll pass it on to you for um some more oily content (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i wanted to talk to you guys about macadamia nut oil today and its growing popularity in the food industry so consumers have been using olive oil on food and in cooking for a very long time but a company called strength genesis believes that it's time for change and time to move towards something that's more versatile as a cooking oil option and they suggest macadamia nut oil um, otherwise known as liquid gold to some people now olive oil is known for its healthy omega-3 fats and is used to aid um, Um, the body in repairing and improving health in general. Consumers use it for cooking their eggs, their chicken, their vegetables, or even using it as a dip. But it has a low smoke point of 350 degrees Fahrenheit, which does not make it really ideal for cooking or grilling. So this company called Strength Genesis says that the Australian macadamia nut oil could be the secret ingredient that not many consumers have heard about. 
Actually, in 2019, the macadamia nut market was valued at $1.17 billion and it's expected to grow at a uh, um, compound annual growth rate of 9.2% between 2020 and 2027. So that's a big increase. Um, one of the reasons for the significant increase is the addition of nuts and dried fruits to many people's diets. More specifically, the increased awareness of the health benefits of using nuts, such as macadamia nuts, um, has allowed this market to grow significantly in the past decade. This increase is also seen in substantially low-income communities. So according to a registered dietitian, her name is Amy McAllister, macadamia nut oil is similar to olive oil in that it has a monounsaturated fat content and is low in saturated fats. Still, it is more buttery and has 40 times the amount of omega-3 fatty acids compared to olive oil. So the fitness and nutrition industry have already been using macadamia nuts to make protein powders and um, oils that are put into capsules for dietary supplements. Uh, most sales at Strength Genesis has been able to target are towards health enthusiasts and foodies, but more specifically keto consumers, so people that are on a keto diet. Um, introducing them to this new oil is catering more towards the stuff that they can cook, such as like steaks and things like that, that is usually a main part of the keto diet. So um, macadamia nut oil actually has a higher smoke point than olive oil, which makes it less dangerous and less carcinogenic. The company is dedicated to also being ethically sourced and a sustainable brand. So the macadamia nut they use is 100% Australian and the products are packaged in glass or metal. So they do not use anything like styrofoam or plastics in their containers or shipping boxes or the cartons. So my question for you today is, do you think the future of macadamia nut oil will be as as prominent or as promising as the olive oil industry has already been in the market? And do you think we'll be seeing it more in supermarkets nationwide? I'm not sure because olive oil has a whole culture around it, right? It's, mm. you know, you have, it's been traditionally used in so many Mediterranean cultures. And so I think, uh, and, you know, in, in various foods, it's, it's the core component. And so that is a little bit different than introducing, so that's not, olive oil was not a new kind of a product, you know, it's been around for ages, and maybe it's just been introduced recently to mainstream Western um, societies and things like that, but things like macadamia nut oil, um, I'm not sure, is it traditionally used in any kind of cuisines or any um, other cultures? I don't really think so. So I think people will be interested in trying it, but I don't really see it replacing something like olive oil because there's just too much history and just too much uh, culinary um, contexts associated with, with olive oil. But it's very interesting. I think um, nut oils are getting popular. I mean, I've tried almond oil um, and things like that. So I would definitely be open to trying um, more of these nut oils for their health benefits and if uh, they taste good. 
Yeah, I think it will have to compete with other, you know, other very common oils aside from olive oil, vegetable, canola, sunflower, um, and other nut oils as well. Um, and I'm also wondering how, uh, you know, what the taste is like too, if, if it's considered a neutral oil or if it still has a bit of a tinge of macadamia nut flavor in it. Because I could see that being used in uh, baking as well. I feel like that may, if it does have a bit of a flavor, it could add a nice, uh, nice hint of uh, macadamia nut because that's a, a really nice uh, yeah. taste. Um, but yeah, in terms of competing with olive oil, it definitely is going to be tough. Um, cause yeah, there is a huge culture around it and people are very picky about their olive oils as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is something that could probably be a little on the pricier side too, just mm-hmm. given the fact that macadamia nuts are a more expensive nut as well, but something I would definitely be open to trying. Yeah, in, term, in terms of the taste, I'm not too sure, but they do say it has a buttery texture. So that would always, you know, amplify cooking mm-hmm. things like um, vegetables and meats and things like that, that you want that naturally buttery flavor. Um, but yeah, I think I think definitely the whole, uh, their biggest selling point, I think, is the fact that it has a higher smoke point. Mm-hmm. But then if you compare it to things like canola oil or vegetable oil that already do have that as their selling point it's like what else is the company trying to market on to make sure that people are trying to buy their nut oil compared to something used more traditionally um yeah i totally agree with that they're calling it liquid gold which i mean yeah i think it could backfire on them (laughs) potentially might drive away people who are worried about price and cost. Yeah, so, so <laughs> no macadamia nut oil actually is known in the community to be called liquid gold. So oh, they're like okay. marketing on that as well. So <laughs> it's like it's a liquid gold and many doctors prefer it and things like that. So it's it's interesting to see. I think I think I would definitely try it, but it is more on the expensive side for sure. Especially if you go down the grocery store aisle and you find like this, you know, five hundred milliliter bottle for thirty dollars and then you'll find like a canola oil for like or whatever it is you know so Mm -hmm. I think it's still more premium and niche right now but Mm -hmm. I think it does have those like um those two big selling points of having the higher smoke point and also being like nutritionally good for Mm -hmm. you so it's it's I think if they were to sort of aim their marketing around saying like, hey, like olive oil and the omega-3 fatty acids, but also need to like do some higher heat, you know, frying and you'd normally choose something like a canola oil, um, maybe um, maybe macadamia nut oil is, is kind of the oil for you. But yeah, still feels niche, but I could see a market for it. I'm just not sure, as everyone else has sort of said, that it will be as big um as olive oil i think one of the major hurdles is like sometimes with these newer products people are like what do i do with this maybe it's not as hard with an oil um since you can use it for you know frying and and maybe baking and things like that um but i think if they were to partner with like a celebrity chef or something and say like look at all these recipes that are kind of highbrow but it's also somewhat approachable for you to make in your own kitchen um all using macadamia nut oil I, like i could see then people being more willing to to try it but just not sure if it'll completely like replace olive oil on the shelf this kind of reminds me of the trend um a few years back where everyone started using coconut oil mm-hmm. for cooking um because of you know the nutritional benefits and all that kind of stuff and you shouldn't use it on 
you, you know, you shouldn't use um, olive oil when frying and, you know, adding coconut oil to popcorn and all that kind of stuff. But then suddenly a few years after that happened, people started saying, actually, it's not healthy for you to use coconut oil at mm -hmm. all. So there was a lot of controversy about whether coconut oil is actually mm -hmm. good for cooking or not. Mm -hmm. So I think for this, something like this is something I would wait a bit for, um, me personally. But I do think nut oils are becoming increasingly popular and that people are turning towards different kinds of options. But for sure, they should have like, you know, a recipe book or something like that to make people realize it's not going to taste nutty, like peanut oil, for example, or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, people are just going to be a bit confused about like what you can use it for. I think, Sydney, you were like, oh, it might be good in baking. But it's kind of like, you know, we don't really know. Like, what could it be replaced? Like, could it replace olive oil in dressings? I don't know. Like, what do you use it for? But um, it kind of reminds me, like, there's like this um, community that like uh, sort of lives in like a valley in the mountainous regions in uh, Pakistan where I'm from. And their cuisines are like... They're not so mainstream, but they use a lot of nut oils, like walnut oil, apricot oil. And I like, we didn't even know about this. We're like, oh, wow. And they live to be, you know, very healthy and they live very long lives. So it's kind of, but they have a culture around it. So if you look up, like they have cuisines and specific dishes that they use these oils in. And so, yeah, like it would help if we know the uses and what sort of like you could use these oils for. But yeah. Mm. All right. Well, that is the end of this episode of the X Talks Food Podcast. If you like today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the X Talks Food Industry Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalk.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.